702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Live, online. The 702 app, DSTV Channel 856, 92.7 and 106 FM. Coming up on the show today, the EFF picket to the Israeli embassy in Pretoria. There's a march in support of Israel at the U.S. consulate in Santon. Commuters get stranded as most of Tuani's Arayeng bus drivers refuse to work. The latest on the Senzo Miwa trial, human trafficking victims rescued in Edenville. And we'll wrap up the Rugby and Cricket World Cups this past weekend. All of that over the next hour. 7.02. Let's walk the talk. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Midday Report on 702 and Cape Talk with me, Mandy Wiener. Good to be with you today. That lead story in Eyewitness News, listening to the Electricity Minister, Josienzo Ramachopa, saying that plans have been put in motion to tackle the country's longstanding energy crisis are now beginning to bear fruit. Uh, they're now beginning to pay off. Uh, so he had a briefing earlier today, Ramachopa, saying that ESCOM's ability to extend load shedding suspensions is due to the efficiency of its generation units which are producing more power than planned Uh, so saying people say demand is going down because of rooftop solar yes that's what we want that's what we're encouraging we want the number of rooftop rooftop solar megawatts to be higher Uh, but he's saying that they've put measures in place they've turned the corner do you do you believe this do you do you buy it do you think it's accurate or do you think that these are just short-term gains and that we're going to pay the price long term he seems to be saying that they've put measures in place plans to end load shedding are starting to bear fruit of course everything that we are witnessing has to be viewed through the prism of the fact that it's an election year next year and we cannot be under any illusion about that. I'd love to hear what you think. 072-702-1702-072-567-1567. We'll play some more audio of that briefing by Josien Suramahopa a bit later on today. But let's start with the situation in the Middle East and what's happening in South Africa in response to two different protests that we are monitoring for you today. In Twane today, uh, Julius Malema is leading the EFF's Palestine Solidarity Picket at the Israeli Embassy in Pretoria. Uh, The EFF saying the picket will be a demonstration of solidarity with the people of Palestine in their ongoing conflict with Israel. Uh, So that's happening at the Israeli embassy in Pretoria today. As you heard in Eyewitness News, the EFF is calling for the removal of the Israeli ambassador to South Africa. Tabiso Goba, EWN reporter, is there for us. Tabiso, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, Tell us about the EFF uh, picket taking place there today. Uh, Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, we we have just started... uh walking towards the Israeli embassy here in Pretoria. Now, I can tell you, Mandy, close to about 2,000 EFF supporters, um, probably more than that, um, have arrived. Um, As you know, Mandy, civic organizations um, have also joined this protest. Um, Also, uh, uh, I saw Karl Niehaus and his new political party, they're also here too. So uh, it's quite a very significant number of people um, that are going to be to the Israeli embassy. The police are obviously here and they are monitoring the situation, Mandy. And what kind of message is being sent there today? What is the EFF saying about its protest? Well, as you mentioned, Mandy, um, the EFF has obviously called for the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador to South Africa. Uh, we do know, obviously, that um, last Friday, um, the ANC was also here, and that um, there were members um, of the ANC who also called for the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador. So 
that's from uh, I think from a from a um, from a government perspective, the EFF is saying that we are going to be pushing, uh, we, we are going to be applying pressure to the ANC government to actually expel the ambassador. But uh, in terms of um, just maybe at a symbolic um, state, you know, the EFF is saying that uh, what is happening in Palestine is um, is apartheid uh, and uh, ethnic cleansing, and they are here to actually show solidarity with the people of Palestine as obviously a government in waiting. They're saying that um, their international uh, policy uh, will be obviously towards the people of Palestine in this ongoing war uh, between Israel and Palestine. Tabiso, thank you very much, Tabiso Koba, EWN reporter who's in Tuane for us monitoring that protest taking place uh, today, the EFF marching or picketing at the Israeli embassy in Pretoria. So that's the one story we're looking at. The other is taking place in Santon outside the U.S. consulate in Santon today. The Greater Alexandra Progressive Forum alongside concerned citizens and compassionate individuals, uh, according to the statement, is gathering outside the U.S. consulate in Santon. Uh, they say their purpose is to show unwavering support for Israel uh, and calls for justice, peace and freedom. It's part of the Solidarity Has No Boundaries campaign. Patrick Beloy is from the Greater Alexandra Progressive Forum. Patrick joining us now to speak about that. Patrick, thank you for your time. Uh, Tell us about what you're calling for uh, in this campaign and what you're doing outside the U.S. consulate in Santon today. Uh, Thank you very much and uh, good uh, afternoon to your listeners. So uh, we are the Greater Alexander Progressive Youth Forum. Uh, we are a organization from the township. And um, Alexander and the Jewish community uh, has had a relationship and part- a developmental partnership for quite some time. Uh, they have built schools. Uh, they have uh, contributed towards our health uh, systems and well-being. So we then took it upon ourselves to organize this campaign called Solidarity Has No Boundaries to first condemn the savage and barbaric attack that took place on the 7th of October uh, by a, 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 what is this organization? Hamas. A, a Hamas. So uh, we want to first condemn that. But secondly, uh, to have three main objectives as a campaign. The first campaign is to, I mean, the first objective uh, is to call for the release of hostages that are held captive by Hamas. Secondly, uh, is to advocate for a ceasefire. And thirdly, is uh, for the international community to start facilitating and initiating peace talk between the two nations. Because at some point, this issue needs to be resolved and we best believe that this issue can be resolved through discussion and not through exchange of missile and rockets. Patrick, thank you very much. Uh, Patrick Beloy is from the Greater Alexandra Progressive Forum speaking to us there about that campaign taking place today. So uh, that's outside the U.S. consulate in Santon. Uh, that's one story we're looking at. The other, of course, outside the Israeli embassy in Tuane today where the EFF is picketing. 702. 702. Mandy Wiener. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m.
Well, let's uh, go to Twane again now because uh, thousands of commuters in the city of Twane left stranded this morning. Over 70% of its Arayang buses are not in operation today. Services were due to resume this morning. They were suspended indefinitely amidst the wage dispute. You know, we've been covering this for a, a long period of time now, this ongoing dispute between um, between the workers, the employees in the city of Twane and the city as well. According to the city of Twane, spokesperson Salbi Bukhava, uh, only 36 of those buses went out today. Alpha Ramashwana, EWN reporter, joining us. Alpha, good afternoon to you. What is the situation with the Arayang buses? Uh, how many people have been impacted by this? Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, you know, the thousands and thousands of commuters in the city of Tuane uh, have been left stranded this morning. Of course, they thought they would travel to work or to school uh, through the Ariak bus service. But unfortunately, only 36 of those buses were on the roads today. And the municipality runs about 160 daily shifts. So 100 and, about 160 drivers work on, it, uh, on a daily basis. And only 36 of them uh, are, are, are reported to duty. What the municipality has also said is that most of their drivers did report to work today, actually, but they just refused to drive the buses. And of course, this is all... Um, over the disputes between the municipality and the city. We do know that the city uh, has refused to implement the 5.4 wage increase that through some of the municipal workers have been uh, protesting for since the month of July. So it seems like the bus uh, problems in the city of Tuan are not going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, they've been on and off since the month of July, the third month going into the fourth month now. Uh, and it seems like if the municipality doesn't meet them halfway. You know, it's going to continue being an on and off operation for for a long time. Alpha, what kind of contingency plans are in place to assist those uh, passengers who have been left stranded, those commuters who aren't able to catch these buses today? Well, from the municipality, there was nothing that they could do because the bus drivers were refusing to drive the buses or to move the buses. So it seems like some of those residents had no choice but to uh, use taxis like they've been doing for uh, the past few weeks so and we do know taxis are a bit more expensive than you know the buses in the city of Tuane are so they're going to have to dig deeper into their pockets now uh, to travel to work and back or to school and back and we did hear the municipality saying now they've been left no choice but to uh, uh, enforce some sort of an internal disciplinary measure on uh, all these bus drivers who refused to drive the buses today, but it, it's too many of them. 70% of them, you know, didn't work today. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it would be too much of a wise decision to uh, um, dismiss them like they did with the other municipal workers who were protesting uh, just uh, a few months ago. So uh, the city of Tuan is saying that they might have to enforce some disciplinary measures here. But, you know, residents are stranded. Residents have to look for alternative modes of transport now because uh, the, the buses, which are the cheapest option, are just not working at the moment. Uh, and and is there a timeline on this? Is is Samuel or the city of Tuane communicating about how long this could take? No, well, the city of Tuane at the moment uh, is, is not aware of, or they, they're not sure how long this could take because uh, they thought they had reached an agreement with the workers that they'll report to work today report to duty today uh, but unfortunately it seems like the workers were planning to boycott the service because they did report to work but they just refused to move those buses so there is no communication from the city of Tuane they are not sure how long this uh, is going to take but they did say that they are trying to speak to the municipal workers and see if they can reach another agreement and perhaps 
uh, they'll try to resolve this uh, problem uh, with urgency. Uh, when it comes to SAMU and the municipal workers, they uh, haven't communicated anything. We did try to get in contact with them, uh, but we, we that, that was um, you know not successful. Uh, so we will try to get a hold of them again and see how long they're planning to um, um, yeah, right. withhold services for. Okay, Alpha, thank you very much. Alpha Ramashwana, EWN reporter, speaking to us there about the situa- situation with the Arayang bus service in the city of Tuane. Many commuters uh, being left stranded there, thousands of commuters uh, in the city of Tuane stranded because over 70% of its Arayang buses are not in operation. 702, the midday report, Monday to Friday, 12 to 1 p.m. Well, we are going to speak about Samu's calls for urgent intervention to prevent municipal collapse in, in various metros. The South African Municipal Workers Union expressing serious concern around a parliamentary reply from uh, Minister Maropeni Ramakhopa, responsible for monitoring, planning and evaluation in the presidency. But before we get into that, I do want to speak to uh, Dumasani Magagula from Samu about what we've just been talking about in the city of Tuane and the, the buses. Dumasani, good afternoon to you. Thank you for, for your time. Just before we get into the conversation around the um, pr- pr- uh, to prevent municipal collapse, I, I just want to get clarity from you on the situation with the Arayang buses in Tuane and the ongoing Strike there. The city is saying that bus drivers are refusing to drive buses today. Uh, clarity from your side about what's happening there? Yeah, good afternoon. Um, look, um, as far as we're concerned, um, the city should be fully operational today. On Friday, the provincial chairperson was with the workers. Uh, they agreed uh, that as soon as the city releases the buses, that is this morning, they will be starting to, to to carry out their normal duties. And these bus drivers have been waiting for that to happen. Uh, I just picked up from your uh, airing right now that uh, there are challenges. And we have already asked that the province should get closer to the situation and give us a report. Okay, because as according to our reporter there, the understanding is that the bus drivers are refusing to, to drive, and those are some members who are just refusing to drive the buses. I cannot confirm that. Okay. Um, like I'm saying, we have asked the province to give us a report. What we know is that we, we have faith that this matter is going to be fully resolved on the 25th at the CCMA when we will be meeting with the executive mayor and senior management of that municipality. Well, let's hope so. It's been it's been dragging on for for weeks. So let's hope it does uh, achieve some kind of of resolution on on the twenty fifth. That's uh, a couple of days to go. Uh, we did ask you to come and speak to us today about your concerns as Samu about uh, a parliamentary reply from Minister Maropeni Ramahopa, who is responsible for monitoring, planning, and evaluation in the presidency. And this re- uh, reply tells us that eighty nine point one percent of the country's municipalities are currently facing distress or dysfunction. Uh, Samuel has called for increased intervention in municipalities to prevent their collapse, but you're obviously very concerned about the fact that so many municipalities seem to be on the brink of collapse, Dumisani. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the picture um, um, shows a bleak uh, situation in municipalities, and all these municipalities are entrusted with delivering essential services to residents. And we believe that there is much that the, the government should be doing, uh, that Salga should be doing, Porter 
But we also believe that as municipal workers, we know we have a role to play and we want to be empowered to be able to assist the municipalities to get out of these challenges. Is that collaboration happening, Dumisani? Do, do you get the sense that in these municipalities um, there is a disconnect between the, the SAMU, between Labour, um, the members of, of SAMU who are employed and, and the leadership in government? Look, under normal circumstances, it's municipal workers that should be ensuring that there is service delivery if there is enough support and provision from management of municipalities. But currently, with this broken system, it means that there needs to be an, a, a, an intervention and engagement of stakeholders, and the union of workers becomes a key stakeholder to make sure that we take the municipalities out of these challenges. We have not been engaged sufficiently. We have made a call over and over again. We have requested to have a session with the Minister of Cocta, and we had a session with Salga, but we don't see results coming through. That's why we are now making this call that involve us, involve us to make sure that we save these municipalities because we are community members and we are struggling for service delivery ourselves. And at the same time, this is our workplace and we are not going to allow corruption to uh, destroy what becomes a a livelihood of many families within different municipalities. Dumasani, what does that intervention look like uh, when you call for for intervention? What is the the remedy to this problem? Because I'm sure it's no no there's no simple panacea to the problems of all of these municipalities. Yeah, look, we are we are proposing a number of solutions. Uh, first of all, we propose that fraud and corruption should be eradicated in municipalities. And believe me, municipal workers know where fraud is taking place and municipal workers have made a call, they've blown the whistle and they simply become victims when they do that. So we need protection for municipal workers so that we can assist in eradicating fraud. We need to strengthen municipal governance, improve revenue collection. There are quite a number of municipalities that are not collecting revenue correctly. They have not put in uh, in place the different systems that should be there, and they are not reaching communities. And municipal workers can be able to assist in this role. Uh, what is happening currently is municipalities are relying on private companies uh, to collect revenue, and they are not using municipal workers. But also, we want all services to be reintegrated back to municipalities so that we can start to see engineers coming up and we can save a lot of money that municipalities are wasting on uh, engineering services. Dumasani, thank you very much. Uh, Dumasani Magagula from Samu speaking to us there about uh, concerns around municipalities. Dumasani is the Samu General Secretary, uh, extremely concerned about what's happening in municipalities. According to that reply from Minister Maropene, Ram- Maropene Ramachopa, um, the fact that uh, so many municipalities, 89.1%, are currently facing distress or dysfunction as things stand. Also clarity there from Dumasani from Samu on the situation with the bus in Tswane. If you've been impacted by that, uh, I'm not quite sure what to call it at this point, labour action, he's saying that it's not bus drivers refusing to, to drive. They need to confirm that. Uh, let me know if you've been impacted at all. Send us a WhatsApp voice note. 
And now, it's back to Mandy Wiener on the Midday Report. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. At the start of the show, I told you that the Minister of Electricity in the Presidency, Dr. Josien Saramakhopa, had a briefing today on the state of uh, electricity and all of the issues that we're facing. He said that he's confident that we've turned the corner on the energy crisis. It may soon be the end for load shedding. Very upbeat. Have a listen to what he had to say. The high tent levels of load shedding stage six that uh, essentially what we're dealing with uh, is a short-term pain. Uh, which is going to result in long-term gain. And we're beginning to see the kinds of gains that I was uh, referring to. I did make the point initially that uh, our actions are deliberate. So we're going to invest uh, a lot of our efforts to to ensure that we're able to to maintain the units and thanks in part uh, to the fiscal support. So that's uh, Minister Ramakhopa. The fact that we have an electricity minister still never ceases to amaze me. Um, but he's saying that we are beginning to see a sustained, improved performance over an extended period of time. Are we electioneering? Uh, as I said earlier, we know that everything that we uh, we do now is viewed through the prism of the elections that come up next year. Uh, or do you believe him? Do you think that they are making efforts and we are starting to reap the rewards uh, of those efforts that are being made? That's what the electricity minister has to say, uh, that we are starting to, to see the fruits of what has been done. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Mandy... Uh, let's give the credit where it is due. Uh, the minister and his team and the ESCOM board and the executive team have done very well. However, let's not forget, Mindy, that ESCOM has an installed 46,000 take your peak megawatts of power there. So we know we're not supposed to be in this position to start with. It was the NC and his employees that messed this thing up. So they have to fix it. We don't need IPP's custas. Good day, Mindy. Uh, you know what? Uh, we all knew that uh, next year is elections and now we won't have a load sharing problem because of it's part of uh, marketing, you know, the voters and uh, let them vote for them. So, I mean, really, this load sharing thing is just, uh, it's just a must. Good day, uh, Mandy. It's uh, Norman and Pichori. I think the uh, drivers of the city of Swanee buses that have uh, not pitched up for work, I think they should just be dismissed. I think the days of uh, allowing people uh, to be unruly, not cooperative, and uh, being contempt of court uh, within the public uh, service administration, it must uh, they must just be fired. I mean, uh, people uh, need to go to work. Uh, it's now exempt for the matriculants, and people are not coming to work. And uh, they are also in the, in, the, in the illegal strike. They might be fired. Thank you very much for those WhatsApp voice notes. Hey, Kustas, hey, of course, don't forget that ESCOM's chairperson of the board quit. Uh, and we still don't have a CEO. We haven't got a permanent CEO of ESCOM and no one knows when that's going to happen. So there are concerns around that. So it does worry me around the stability of the parastatal. Uh, and when Jose Enzo says we've turned the corner and it looks like we're now reaping the fruits, is it really happening? Uh, do we have to just have faith in the electricity minister? Uh, or do you think this is just part of 
the electioneering campaign. So thank you for those WhatsApp voice notes. Uh, and I do hope that the situation in the city of, of Tuane does, uh, that they find some kind of resolution when they meet at the CCMA uh, on the 25th, which is in, in two days' time, because this has been going on for far too long. You can't have this kind of standoff and this kind of acrimony, the acrimonious relationship between the city of Tuane and the municipal workers. As we heard from from Samuel, um, we just spoke to, to uh, Dumasani um, from Samuel Dumasani Magagula saying there needs to be better cooperation between the municipal workers and the city, not just in Tuane, but across the board in all of these crumbling municipalities. And the only way that we're going to get these municipalities to work is if you have cooperation, if you have that climate of cooperation between the employees and the city management. 702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Let's walk the talk. Let's get an update now on the Senzo Miyua trial. For the past few days, we've been hearing about this trial within a trial, the admissibility or inadmissibility, as the uh, as the judge has ruled there, on the confession that was recorded by the magistrate. Let's get an update now with Khamotso Modise, EWN reporter. Khamotso, good afternoon to you. What's the latest in the Senzo Miyua trial? Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, we've moved now from uh, that uh, inadmissibility ruling on the recording that was taken by Magistrate Kriyad. Uh, the magistrate returned very briefly to the witness stand today for further cross-examination by lawyers for accused number three, four, and five. And what we heard from lawyer for accused number five, that's advocate Daniel Mshololo, is the questions around the unlawful detention of Bongani Ndanzi. So Ndanzi was arrested on uh, the 16th of June, 2020, and he appeared before Magistrate Cronier, uh, uh, not in an official court appearance, but just for the confession statement to be taken on the 24th. That's eight days later. And he had not appeared um, in, before a court of law um, before then. Now, we know that the Criminal Procedure Act is very clear about a person appearing before court and no uh, longer uh, than 48 hours. So you can't be held in custody uh, for any longer than 48 hours. Then it becomes an unlawful detention. And so uh, Advocate Mshololo was questioning why the magistrate didn't do anything about Dante's detention that was far longer than 48 hours. She's questioned when often Dante had pointed out to the magistrate that actually I've been in detention since the 16th, why she didn't report the matter at all. The magistrate has made a confession here saying she did find um, that the, the, the detention of Dante did seem irregular to her, and that's why she told um, her uh, uh, her manager at the time, the principal or the chief magistrate in that court. Um, and really, that's what Advocate Mshololo has been pushing here this morning, that this detention was unlawful, and so no statement or confession taken during that time should be admitted before the court. Magistrate Cornier has completed her testimony now, and she uh, has stood down from the witness stand, and a new witness, the interpreter, who was in that court with the magistrate on that day, has now taken the stand. Komoto, thank you very much for that update. Uh, Komoto Modise, EWN reporter in the High Court uh, in Pretoria, giving us an update there on the Senzo Miyua trial. 702. 702. Mandy Wiener. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m.
So a quick update for you on another matter. Judges Matter has slammed Julius Malema for comments that he made about the magistrates in East London last week. Uh, you remember this. He he said it was a sponsored judgment. Uh, he said that the magistrate was incompetent. Her ruling was a sponsored judgment. Of course, he didn't provide any substantiation for any of those claims. Uh, this was after the magistrate handed down that ruling, saying that the firearms charges against him had to go ahead. Head. Now, um, just before we came on air, I saw on uh, X that Julius Malema responded to an Eyewitness News article uh, which had the headline, Judges Matter Slams Malema for Comments Against the Magistrate Wants an Apology. And Julius Malema responded saying, they will get it in hell. That's what he's responded on X to that uh, report in EWN. Judges Matter wanting an apology for the comments that he made. Uh, Judges Matter said it's an attack on the judiciary. The fact that he said that there was a sponsored judgment. He said that the magistrate was getting phone calls from President Ramaphosa and all sorts of other people. Uh, Julius Mulema clearly nowhere near apologizing for that. 702, the midday report, Monday to Friday, 12 to 1 p.m. On Saturday, the Joburg Metro Police Department rescued 27 illegal immigrants who were kept in a house in Edenvale. They were handed over to immigration officials. Uh, so let's try and understand what happened here and what officials are saying about this with Kolani Fekla, who's the JMPD spokesperson. Kolani, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. How did, how did this happen that you were made aware about this house in Edenvale where 27 uh, illegal foreigners were being held? Uh, thank you so much uh, to Amanda. Let me take this opportunity to greet uh, the listeners. Uh, yes, uh, as you did say that on Saturday, uh, officers uh, from the canine unit uh, received uh, information about uh, alleged illegal immigrants who have been kept illegally uh, in the premises in Edenville. Uh, officers followed up on that information, which led them uh, to that premises. And upon the arrival, they found approximately 30 illegal male immigrants who were uh, allegedly being uh, trafficked into the country. And whilst uh, interviewing uh, these uh, victims, they started running out of the the cramped room which they were kept in. And officers uh, managed to contain about 27 of uh, these victims. And uh, from uh, interviewing uh, the males who were about between uh, 25 and 35 years of age, there was no clear indication on how they arrived into the country and what they're actually doing in the country. The only thing that was communicated was uh, that uh, they were brought to the premises they were in the previous day. And the problem is due to uh, communication breakdown. Now, but uh, the South African Police Service, the Hawks and uh, Home Affairs Immigration were called to the scene and the victims were taken to the Edenville SAPS where they were processed to be deported back to their country, which is uh, Ethiopia. I just want to try and get clarity on the fact that you describe them as victims. Were they Mm -hmm. held against their will? Were they being trafficked or uh, were they intentionally trying to get into the country illegally? So just some clarity there on whether they were were being trafficked or, or, or what the status is. Uh, we suspect they're being trafficked because of uh, the way they were uh, kept in. Uh, usually a person who's illegally into their country by their own will has the freedom of movement and the only thing they'll try to evade is uh, being uh, caught by the police. So this uh, group were kept in a room which was locked and with about 30 plus uh, people kept in one cramped room. That isn't the type of conditions that a person would uh, voluntarily put themselves in. So we are suspecting that they they were being trafficked into the country. And the 
three on my count uh, who were not held that seemed to get away. Uh, do you know what happened to them? Uh, at this present, we're not too sure, but uh, I, I should think uh, uh, police are on uh, their hot trails to, to find them and also make sure that they are processed and taken back to their country. Kolani, thank you very much. Kolani Fichla, the JMPD spokesperson, speaking to us there uh, about these uh, 27 Ethiopian nationals who were found, it seems, being held against their will in a house in, in Edenville, 1610. It, it all happens. You, you, so uh, the, one, the one thing that always strikes me is that, especially when these things happen in a suburban area, you just never know uh, what could be happening in a, in a suburban he- area. But here there was clearly a tip-off to the canine department uh, of the, the JMPD. MPD. They acted on it and they found um, these 30 men, uh, according to Golani, being held against their will in this house in Edenville and they are now being processed to be deported back to Ethiopia. 702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Let's walk the talk. The KZN Premier Nomusa Dube Tube is today visiting the community of Nkosi Mtubatuba local municipality that was affected by the severe storm that hit the province during the weekend. We saw gale force winds, heavy rainfall as well, affecting the northern part of KZN. Five people being killed there, 14 people reportedly injured as well. Nkhantla Mabaso, EWN reporter, following that for us. Nkhantla, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, tell us about the impact of the storm and what the KZN Premier is doing. Well, many apologies for that background noise. We are now following the disaster management teams as they head to, to the affected community as well. Mandy, when you drive right inside this particular community of Umutuba, North and Wazum Natal, you are met with damaged roads. Well, the roads were already damaged due to the lack of service delivery here, but the weather condition has now made it worse with over 70 houses destroyed. We do know that schools have also taken a hard hit, Mandy, but we are yet to see as to how many as these provincial government disaster teams and provincial government officials visit. But we do know now, Mandy, that um, five people died, including a one-year-old. And government officials really are expected to be meeting with the affected families. But really, Mandy, at the gist of it all is that the province keeps experiencing these heavy rains that end up claiming lives and leaving mm. many homeless Mandy. Yeah, that was what I was about to ask you in Klankla, is that we, we frequently see this, this repeated pattern of heavy mm. weather conditions, uh, loss of life. Is there a sense in KZN that enough is being done by local governments um, to, to mitigate against these, these weather incidents? Not at all, Mandy, because one would have to also look in that regard into the issue of town planning as to to what extent does government play a role in that really if you look at many towns mainly one can tell that really there's, there's a lack of town planning but besides that mainly some of these are public infrastructure that gets affected in various parts of the province really it is that it's public infrastructure that has been there but not maintained, which then makes it easy for such weather conditions to then take a toll or affect them in that regard. But uh, with the lives of, you know, with losing the, the lives of people, many like I mentioned now, it's things really that the provincial government says it cannot be prevented, saying that uh, these weather rains really, I mean, it, they, they blame everything on climate change, many, and the fact that no matter how much disaster, you know, prepare themselves, they never 
expect such, but it does happen that you lose lives. But with regards to town planning, man, it seems to be one of the issues. In fact, President Cyril Ramaphosa also said it was an issue that many municipalities experienced, mm. also referring to towns like Port St. John's and But currently, many we do know that over 70 families are without homes and currently hosted community halls and churches. But what is more needed right now to them mainly is the much needed relief, including blankets yeah. and food. Nkrantla, thank you. Nkrantla Mabaso, EWN reporter, having a look at that uh, bad weather that has affected northern KZN, the Premier Nomusa Dube Tuwe, today visiting those communities that have been affected by those storms hitting the northern part of KZN, five people being killed there. And, and speaking of weather conditions, that uh, segues beautifully into the fact that uh, happening in Johannesburg this week is um, the the heads of meteorolo- meteorological practice that Heads of meteorological services across Africa and beyond gathering in Santon uh, for a capacity building program. So what we're seeing is nearly 60 South African weather service type organizations, national meteorological and hydrological services from across Africa, uh, all meeting in Santon to put their heads together on how best to inspire their respective organizations to be better equipped to address the demands that are posed by climate change and severe weather and variable weather patterns. Isham Abada is the SA Weather Service CEO who's joining us to speak about this. Isham, good afternoon to you. Uh, tell us about this event taking place uh, in Santa and the collaboration that we're seeing uh, all week between the various weather services across the continent. Thank you, Mandy. Um, yes, this is actually an initiative, a training initiative in terms of leadership and management um, that's been organized by the World Meteorological Organization. And they've collaborated with us and with the Henley Business School um, to provide this training to the heads of the NMHSs uh, on the continent. But it's not only limited to um, the continent. We've also got visitors from um, the Americas um, and also the Caribbean that are um, taking part in this conference. And what are some of the issues that you're going to be looking at uh, this week? I mean, we just spoke to our reporter in Northern KZN, uh, speaking about climate change, uh, severe variable weather patterns as well. Uh, what are the, the primary concerns for you? Well, the, the issue is there's a few concerns around institutionalization, for example, of the Met offices in various countries. I think that's quite an important thing. The other thing is the observational networks in our countries in Africa need a lot of work. Um, And then thirdly, we've also got to look at the digital transformation in terms of what's happening in terms of digital technology, my apologies, Um, so as to bring us up to to speed in terms of the the latest cutting-edge technologies. So in your statement, a very interesting fact here that between 1970 and 2021, Africa accounted for 35% of weather, climate and uh, water-related fatalities, yet only 40% of the African population has got access to early warning systems, uh, the lowest rate of any region in the world. That's correct, Mandy. So part of the WMO initiative, um, they've got a program that they've started about a year ago, which follows on the call from the UN that by 2027, um, we'd have early warning systems for all people globally. So that soft program, which is better known as the Systemic Observation Funding Facility, that program is geared specifically towards ensuring that we put in place these early warning systems and 
Um, how you do that is you actually start building observational networks in African countries. That's the, the essence. They collect data. That data is then um, interpreted, and that's how you get your numerical weather pr- uh, predictions done. So once that basic infrastructure is in place, you can then um, do your weather forecasting and your predictions, and in so doing, you can do your early warning um, forecast. Right. Isham, thank you so much and best of luck uh, for the the event this week. Uh, Isham Abadar is the SA Weather Service CEO speaking to us there about that uh, collaboration, that training uh, that we're seeing with uh, the WMO and uh, weather services across the African continent. Sports Wrap. Sports Wrap. On 702 and Cape Talk. Mawanda Mateza in studio to wrap up the weekend sport. Uh, we have some breaking news, Mawanda. World Rugby confirming that they are reviewing the alleged actions of Bongi Mbanambi, who's accused of using a racial slur against Tom Curry. Uh, in a statement, World Rugby saying they take all allegations of discriminatory behaviour extremely seriously. What's your take on this? Was he speaking of Afrikaans? Was it a racial slur? What's what's the vibe? Uh, good afternoon, man. Yeah, um, from my mind, it does, does not make sense that Bongi Mbanambi would say something like that. Um, and it, the, expl- the explanation that he said something in Afrikaans makes the most sense uh, at the moment. And, 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 and I, I mean, I'd like to tell you on the radio what he said, and um, but he was referring to the Afrikaans side. side yeah, uh, seemingly, and he was talking either that or the blind side or the white side. But um, obviously, Tom Curry, I feel like it's something that was lost in translation uh, and misunderstood on Tom Curry's side. Um, and I don't think for his side that he is being malicious or any sort of. I think it's a genuine misunderstanding, probably, possibly when it comes to this. And like I said, he reported the incident to referee Ben O'Keefe at the time. However, nothing was caught on his mic. Uh, however, there was the time when Ben O'Keefe said he will look into it. So looking forward to if there is anything else substantive uh, that will come out of that at the moment. Uh, and then just generally reflecting on... Um, the, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe this. but Energy we, sapping, we, it was, draining. It was, yeah, it was hard to watch. Emotional. I, I did um, on social media put up a picture of Jacques Ninaba because I felt like I was Jacques Ninaba and we were all Jacques Niraba sitting with his hands in his head. I, I couldn't jump up and celebrate. It was yeah. just a uh, I, I feel like there was a lot of uh, the Springbok players as well who just sank to their knees at the end of when the final whistle blew. Um, and there's a, a major sense of relief when it comes to the, to, to the result of, of that game. Um, they, England had the lead for what, 78 minutes and the Springboks only led for two and it was the two that mattered the most. Um, however, I think the fact that uh, the Springboks have played four of the top six and the fifth of the top six sides will be on Saturday against the All Blacks, I think it's an emotionally and uh, physically draining and taxing campaign that they've had to endure over this World Cup. And again, playing the hosts and with all the emotion of playing the hosts at home uh, in front of their crowd mm. the week before and then an England side who absolutely were phenomenal in the way that they yeah. thwarted the Springboks uh, was completely draining and uh, you can understand the way that they reacted. And then of course the Proteas were just dominant against England on Saturday so how are they positioned going into the rest of the World Cup? Yeah, so the, the Proteas at the moment are third on the table and still need a couple of wins to secure their place in the World Cup semi-finals. However, it is looking good at the moment especially for the fact that they beat England in the manner that they did. Uh, however, there is still a little bit of a concern for my mind, and that is the Proteas bowling, uh, where they mm. are just not able to finish off. They they start so well 
well in each of their games against Sri Lanka, Australia and England now, as well as the Netherlands even. You can count that as well. Uh, but they just aren't able to wrap up the tail. And I think they let uh, 70 runs go for the last, what, two wickets. Uh, that's just not the way that you'd want it to be. So I think we need to polish up just a little bit on our bowling. Still confident, still confident. Moande, thank you so much, Moande Mateza, just reflecting on what happened in both the Rugby and the Cricket World Cups at the weekend. The Midday Report. Well, thank you very much for joining us.